Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I want to share with you a speech that I had the opportunity to give last summer to the interns of the Ohio-based pro-life group Created Equal. Now, those of you who are regular followers of this podcast will be familiar with the group Created Equal. I've had the founder of that group, Mark Harrington, on this podcast many times to discuss a variety of pro-life issues. They've been at the forefront of a lot of major pro-life campaigns. And Mark asked me to come and speak to their interns about what it means to be a pro-life activist, what it looks like to be a pro-life activist in a, in a post-row world, but in a, in a world where abortion forces and pro-life forces are increasingly facing off, and also why I thought being a pro-life activist was so important and what the story of the pro-life movement really is and whether or not there's any hope for the pro-life movement. And the speech was uh, recently released, and I thought it would be very interesting to be able to share it uh, with all of you to hear any comments that you might have about it, because I do think that pro-lifers have done a pretty terrible job of telling the story of the pro-life movement. We're very effective at telling the story of the babies we're seeking to save, the babies that we are tasked uh, with speaking for in the halls of power and on the streets and in the schools. But for people to join the pro-life movement, they are in essence joining a story. And people don't think often in ideological terms, they think in terms of stories and the story of the pro-life movement is a pretty great one the story of the pro-life movement is also a story that's rooted in a much longer story that story of christian social reform movements and christian resistance to a culture of death and so I heard from a lot of people afterwards that they found the speech encouraging, and so I'm going to share it with all of you today in the hopes that you might find it encouraging or enlightening in some way as well. Created Equal is one of my favorite pro-life groups in the world, and I've gotten the opportunity to work with the pro-life movement in 13 countries. So when I say that, I'm not just saying that to make you feel good. And one of the things that I find about working with pro-life groups is in so many ways, our job is incredibly surreal. In so many ways, what we do is hard to fully understand, even for those of us who are doing it. I was talking to Seth just before the talk, and there will be little moments that stand out to you during your day that reminds us that what we do is not something that should need to be done. I was typing uh, a column the other day, and then I looked next to my laptop, and I realized that on the desk next to my laptop was a pair of metal forceps that had been used to kill thousands of babies. We can almost get used to what's happening sometimes. We can almost accept the reality that we see around us because it's so hard to fathom on a sunny, beautiful day like this that the reality that we're all experiencing right now, getting to be together, getting to be with other activists, with other pro-life warriors, getting to be with our family and to enjoy uh, each other's company, that reality is good and true, but there's another reality happening simultaneously, something unfolding at the same time. Because while we get to enjoy this beautiful sunny day, preborn children are being killed in the most gruesome way that we can possibly imagine. Now, I remember having the experience when I first joined the pro-life movement that I know many of you have had as well, where people ask you, why this issue? Why do you care so much about abortion? And what we see is that abortion so often gets treated like it's not about actual people, 
who are actually being killed. So on one hand, you'll have a lot of churches saying, that's a political issue, we don't talk about politics. And then the politicians will say, that's a religious issue, we don't cover religious issues. And what you have is millions of corpses quietly piling up in between the no man's land of cowardice that we've established to avoid doing something about the fact that children are being killed every day. And I know I've shared this story with some of you before, but I still remember so vividly the moment that I actually held a preborn child who'd been aborted for the first time in my hands. And it was a moment where my brain almost split because how, how do you convey to people what's going on when they insist that it's not that big of a deal, when they insist it's just your thing, when they insist it's just really all about politics? And I remember holding this little boy who was perfect in every way except for the back of his skull had been caved in because that's how the abortionist had killed him and feeling like I could go insane because I was holding a real baby that millions of people in the culture around me would say was not a real baby. They would say this is a clump of cells. They would say this is not really a human being. They would say who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? And there's something about holding a person that so many people around you, so many people that you talk to this summer say isn't a person that makes you feel like screaming, that makes you feel like drawing attention to how can you not say that this little boy is a little boy? How can you say that his life was worth nothing? How can you say that his murder was just? And then I put the jar he was floating in down on the table, and the thing that stuck out to me the most about that moment which is kind of tattooed on my memory. I can never forget it, and I can never be the person that I was a minute before I saw it because I met an abortion victim, and that meeting changed my life in fundamental ways. When I put that jar down, I saw the label on the lid of the jar of formaldehyde in which he was floating. And that label only had two things on it, the name of the abortionist who killed him and the name of the place where he died. And the reason that struck me so much is because so many times at pro-life activism, you have somebody scream at you, why don't you get a real job? Why don't you care about real kids? Why don't you care about the real orphans? I'd hear that from Christians who go to church. Why can't you care about real orphans in countries? Why don't you volunteer with World Vision or something? And I was thinking, looking at that label on the lid of the jar, is there anybody in our culture more orphaned than a little boy whose name we do not know because he wasn't given one, whose last name we do not know because he was abandoned by every single natural family member. We don't know who his dad was or who his mother was. We don't know who his grandparents were or if he had any siblings. The only thing we know about this little boy is the name of the person who killed him and the name of the place where he died. And is there anybody in our culture more orphaned than that? Are there any orphans whom the biblical command to stand up for applies more than a child who is so orphaned that he's abandoned by all of those who should have protected him, should have protected her, so abandoned they didn't bother to name him? Nobody is more orphaned than that, and nobody needs our help more than they do. I was talking with Mark last night about the 
uh, first trip where we actually met when I was in Florida. And that trip really stands out to me because it was the first time I experienced for myself that I didn't have to sit by and watch the culture fall apart. I didn't have to accept a world in which people thought killing babies was a right. I could do something about it. When I first did uh, that trip, I was just a campus activist. We were doing the kinds of things that campus activists do. You get together for pizza and you talk about how you're pro-life together. Um, every once in a while, you'll put up a poster or something like that. And then Stephanie Gray invited me out to do, to do GAP. And I'd never heard of GAP before, and I had no idea if it would work. And I remember one of the very first conversations I had on the very first campus where I was. I'm standing in front of this massive display of abortion victim photography. And I was ready to rumble because I enjoyed debating, and I had gotten that we'd got just gotten the full apologetics training from Stephanie. Mark trained us on pro-life strategy. I was actually kind of hoping that I would run into one of these campus feminists I'd heard so much about because that could be kind of fun. I, you know, like read about them in stories, but I'd never seen one in real. And so I was on campus, and I was I was ready to go. And I remember a young woman came walking by me. She was about 18 years old, and I stuck my hand out with a pamphlet, and I said, "What do you think about abortion?" I was like spring-loaded. I was totally ready to have this discussion. And she stopped, she was wearing these massive sunglasses, and she stared at me and she said, I had one three weeks ago. I don't get speechless very often, as my parents can tell you. I was just riveted to the spot in front of the display because I knew how to explain to her that her baby was a human being, but it was too late for her baby. I knew how to explain to her that her baby was a person. That didn't really matter anymore. I had no idea what to say to her, and so I just asked her, oh, what do you think about this display then? I couldn't think of what else to say. And then I saw tears running past her sunglasses, and she said, why didn't anybody tell me? Why didn't anybody tell me that that's what abortion is and that that's what it's looked like? And in that moment, I realized that her sin of commission was my sin of omission. Because in a country filled with people who call themselves pro-life, the only person who talked to that young woman about abortion was a doctor who lied to her, took her money, and killed her baby. We were three weeks too late for that baby. I have not, since that moment, been able to take seriously the argument that people might be harmed by seeing a picture of an abortion victim. Because I have met too many people who were profoundly harmed because they didn't see one. That first day, one of my very first experiences that first morning was unbelievable for me. Many of you will be able to describe very similar experiences because I realized when the first person I talked to who actually changed their mind, who admitted they had been pro-abortion and had become pro-life, I'm like, this is, this is possible. What if I just kept on doing this and got other people to do it with me and then we did it everywhere that we could? If this can change one person's mind, we can actually see real things change. And I think it's important not to forget that because many of you will have had so many hundreds of conversations now that you almost get used to the tiny miracle of somebody who supported abortion no longer supporting abortion simply because you had the courage and the commitment to go out there, present simple arguments, and tell the truth about what abortion is with your signs. We used to write down, I remember when I first started writing down my testimonies of, of changed minds, I would write a small novel, right? You know, there was cliffhangers, and then there was the point where the argument really sunk in, and they changed their mind. But after a couple of weeks or even a couple of months, you actually get used to the fact 
that people actually do change their mind about abortion. We forget how incredible it is and what an opportunity it is to be part of something like that. I remember one, one of the weeks um, down at Florida on one of the campuses, and everybody was starting off writing these long stories about how they were changing minds. And then I flipped to the end of the book. We filled three fat books in one week, just the stories of students who changed their mind on campus. And you all know how campuses are for being friendly. And towards the end, the testimonies got really short. And one of my colleagues had just written, pro-choice Dylan, human rights argument, pro-life Dylan. Because we actually can change minds. This actually does work. And one of the things that I want to do this morning is rebuke cynicism and rebuke pessimism. But I'm not going to just do so with religious truisms, because a lot of times we brush off responsibility by saying God is in control, by which we actually mean he'll take care of it, I don't need to do anything. The history of social reform is the history of small, committed groups of Christians confronting an unbelievably hostile culture and changing that culture as a result. Now, you're all familiar with the story of William Wilberforce and the Society for Effecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade because he's the one who pioneered a lot of the tactics that created equal uses on the streets, that CCBR uses on the streets. But there's something about that story that I think often gets missed. Because I remember so many times at Right to Life presentations or at church presentations, I would get a version of this. Ah, but abortion's been legal for almost 50 years. What can we possibly do about a status quo that entrenched. Our cultural lifestyle, the way our societies function, it depends on abortion, and so there's really nothing that we can do to get rid of it. We can maybe just mitigate some of the damage. We can address some of the fallout. That's because we forget that William Wilberforce, when he met with 12 other people while on a rainy night in London in a bookshop on St. George Street, they were going up against an institution that had existed in one form or another, not for 50 years, not for 100 years, not for 200 years, for all of recorded human history. The slave trade and slavery itself had been legal in one form or another in every civilization known to mankind. And those 13 people were so insane, they thought they could take it on in the most powerful empire in the world and end it. And they did it in 20 years. How many of you have heard the famous quote from Edmund Burke, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing? Pretty much everybody. It's a favorite quote in the pro-life movement for very obvious reasons. Did you know that when William Wilberforce launched his campaign against the slave trade, Edmund Burke told him he supported him, but he was probably wasting his time? That's because it's easy to get cynical. It's easy to think that we can't make change, and it's easy to ignore 250 years of history that tells us that's just an excuse. 250 years of history that says it's been done before, and there's no reason at all that it can't be done again, and that we have the opportunity to walk in the footsteps of some of the greatest men and women who ever lived. We have the opportunity to stand on the shoulders of giants, to do what they did, to live lives of meaning, because those lives are lived for others, lived for the orphans that are so ignored. Consider again, the National Child Labor Committee. Most of you, again, will have read my book, Seeing is Believing, and how a photographer named Lewis Hine, a former high school teacher, started traveling back and forth across the United States when the committee realized they couldn't get politicians to listen to their complaints and their reports about children suffering inside factories because the titans of industry donate a lot of money to political campaigns. Activists, as you know, often can't afford to donate a lot of money to those campaigns. Three months after his photographic campaign started, Lewis Hine wrote in his diary, already they're 
setting to work to see if such things could be possible. Because he introduced people to the victims that were hidden behind closed doors. In only 12 years, the government started to take action. In only 12 years, the government started to actually pass laws limiting this over the protest of every major industry in the country. An unbelievable change. Why? Because the hidden victims were made visible. Why? Because a handful of people were insane enough to think that they could take on the most powerful forces in their society and win. Because they knew that they could tell a better story. They could tell the story of the victims. They could introduce people to them. Lewis Hine has a great response to those who complained that his tactics were graphic and disturbing. What's really interesting is every single movement that's used imagery, which is every successful social reform movement, has gotten all of the same accusations. One of them was these images are graphic and these are disturbing. And Lewis Hine responded to his critics in an address at Harvard University. And he said, perhaps you are sick of child labor pictures. Well, so are the rest of us, but we propose to make you and the whole country so sick of these images that when the time for action comes, these pictures will be a record of the past. And they now are a record of the past. They're a record of the past because Lewis Hine took them and showed them to the American public. I could take you through 23 different social reform movements one by one and show how imagery impacted the culture, how imagery led to a change in public policy. It's one of the most ignored things about the civil rights movement. Everybody thinks they've got the civil rights movement all figured out. You know, Rosa Parks refused to give up her bus seat. A young Baptist pastor named Martin Luther King Jr. saw that act of defiance, decided to turn that act of defiance into a campaign called the Montgomery Bus Boycotts. The Montgomery Bus Boycotts turned into the Freedom Rides. The Freedom Rides turned into the 1963 March on Washington, where Martin Luther King Jr. told the country about a dream he'd had. The next year, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act passed both houses, making the act of injustice that had forced Rosa Parks to the back of the bus a thing, a thing of the past. Most of you will know that story didn't start with Rosa Parks refusing to give up her bus seat. That story started when Rosa Parks picked up a copy of Jet magazine and saw a photograph of Emmett Till's battered face, a murdered 14-year-old boy whose mother was brave enough to leave his casket open. 50,000 people filed by it. Thousands saw his face in magazines. And one photograph of one murdered boy sparked one woman to one act of defiance that launched a movement that took down a system of injustice that had lasted almost 100 years in less than a decade. That is the kind of story that we have the opportunity to be a part of. That is the story that many of you are a part of. Now, of course, last year, on June 24, Roe v. Wade overturned. Now, I know that... A lot of my pro-life friends moved from celebration to street activism in 24 hours. And I know it's easy to say, great, that's step one, we need to move on. But I do think it's important for us to think about what it means that Roe v. Wade is dead. What it means that Roe v. Wade was overturned. Because the pro-life movement in this country has been dead and buried so many times, I've lost count of the funerals. Everybody said the pro-life movement was dead when Roe v. Wade was passed down in 1973. Then the pro-life movement was dead when the Human Life Amendment failed in the 1980s. Then the pro-life movement was dead when Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992 upheld Roe. The debate was over. Some of you might actually remember how you felt the night Obama got re-elected and it looked like the Supreme Court was lost forever. It looked like street activism was the only way forward because there was no way Roe would ever die. But God works in mysterious ways and Roe v. Wade is dead. And the pro-life movement is not. But one of the reasons it's so important 
to look at what the overturn of Roe means is because when Roe died, something else died as well. I've said this to some of you. The myth of inevitability died when Roe v. Wade died. Our progressive leftist counterparts believe in the myth of progress, that history bends in one direction, that abortion will be legalized everywhere, that societies move steadily more liberal. And when the greatest superpower in the world, the beacon of democracy, decides after almost 50 years of legal abortion to say explicitly in the words of Samuel Alito that abortion is not a constitutional right, that sent a thunderclap around the world. I enjoyed reading left-wing newspapers for the first time in a decade because they were in full panic. Why were they in full panic? Because I think some of them actually realized the full significance of Rose Fall even better than we did. The Guardian quoted pro-life activists from Guatemala to Nigeria saying this changes everything because our work involves going and saying, look, this is moving in one direction. You haven't legalized abortion yet, but everybody eventually does. Ireland fell. There's no way that you can keep abortion illegal forever. Developed countries don't ban abortion. That didn't work on June 25 anymore, did it? Because the greatest nation on earth had declared that abortion was not a constitutional right. The New York Times and the Washington Post both published reports talking to pro-life activists and to pro-choice activists in different countries. One pro-choice one pro activist in Latin America said, this decision has set our work back decades. Because the myth of inevitability is dead. Now suddenly all these developing countries, many of whom still protect pre-born children in the womb, because they haven't gone as insane as we have here in the developed West, suddenly they realize there isn't just one path forward. There isn't one way to become a developed nation because 13 states just declared abortion illegal. Because if you go onto social media right now, the Attorney General of Texas just said, praise God, abortion's illegal in Texas. How did that happen? It happened because Roe died and the myth of inevitability died. That's why they panicked. One of the great quotes from one of the abortion activists that I read was if Roe v. Wade can fall, what else might be possible? What a pleasant question, I think, that is to consider. If Roe v. Wade could fall, what else would be possible? I've been privileged to work with the pro-life movement in many different countries, and one of the things that we often neglect to notice is how many pro-life successes have been taking place around the world. Roe v. Wade, I think, is the biggest and most significant one by far. We know that tens of thousands of babies have already been saved. Yes, we lost in Michigan. Yes, there were some bad referendum results. But it's still so important to recognize here today, as we're all together, we are in an infinitely better position than we were exactly on June 23, 2022. We need to take time to celebrate our victories. And we need to recognize the significance of those victories. But let me give you a few other examples of recent victories. How many of you heard of what happened in Malta? It's a pretty cool story. Malta's the last country in the European Union that bans abortion completely, protects preborn children in the womb. A labor government got elected and decided that what they were going to do was legalize abortion only in the cases of the mother's health. But of course, that's a loophole wide enough to drive a corpse truck through, and that's what they intended to do. Everybody expected that this was going to be smooth sailing. The government was going to put forward the law. Abortion would be legalized in a few circumstances. Activists could say, well, if it's legal for this circumstance, it should be legal for that circumstance. We know the story. We've been there. Massive protests started up on the streets of Malta. 
One protest had a full 4% of the population in attendance. President George Vela said that if an abortion law was put in front of him, he would resign his position rather than signing it. And five weeks ago, the government announced they were scrapping plans to legalize abortion in any circumstances. You should have read the news coverage. Again, I was really enjoying reading The Guardian and The New York Times for a minute. But it isn't just Malta either. How many of you heard about what happened in Liechtenstein? How many of you could pronounce that name? It's a tiny country wedged in between Switzerland and Germany. And they actually still have a hereditary ruling prince. And even Americans might actually support monarchy in this particular situation. Because the abortion activists pushed a referendum, you guys are familiar with referendums, to legalize abortion. And the uh, ruling prince Alois announced that he was going to use his never-before-used and traditionally uh, ineffective powers to overturn the results of the legalized abortion in his country because abortion was murder. And his job was to protect the most vulnerable. The abortion activists were livid because as a result, his public statement skewed the referendum the other way and the abortion activists lost. So they hosted a new referendum, and that referendum was to strip the ruling prince of all of his powers. They lost that one by a margin of 10%. Abortion is still illegal there because one person decided to stand up to risk his entire position for babies. It paid off. Babies are still safe in his country. In March, the president of Guatemala declared his country the pro-life capital of Latin America. And some of you might remember back in 2018, Politicians actually backed away from a plan to legalize abortion after thousands of pro-lifers marched on the Capitol and demanded that the politicians scrap the law. In response to abortion activists working to legalize abortion across Latin America, the Congress of Honduras passed what they call the Shield Against Abortion in Honduras Law, which is just a phenomenal name. They passed an amendment to the Constitution in 2021 by a margin of 88 to 28, making it nearly impossible to legalize abortion in any circumstances. The constitutional amendment sets the bar for legalization so high that it's basically a foregone conclusion that abortion will never be legal there, that babies will always be protected in Honduras. In a massive victory for pro-lifers last year, 62% of voters in Chile rejected a pro-abortion constitution put forward by a new left-wing leader. Again, the gnashing of teeth, the rending of garments taking place in the mainstream media indicated that they saw just how significant that this was. That they constantly want to push forward an abortion agenda that is rejected by millions of the people they're pushing it on. In 2019, the National Assembly of Ecuador voted to retain protections for babies in the womb, Proposed legislation would have legalized it in specific cases, but pro-lifers pushed back, and it failed. In 2022, for the second time in only four years, activists failed to legalize abortion once again. Abortion activists didn't just lose on Roe. They lost in Malta. They lost in Ecuador. They lost in Honduras. They lost in Chile. They've, they're losing, in fact, across Latin and South America. They're losing across Africa. Because ordinary people, just like you, are part of one of the most epic stories in modern history, which is young men and young women standing up to defend babies that are not their own, babies who will never know what they did, babies who will never show up to thank them. And that is resulting in millions of people being born who otherwise would not have. How many of you have heard of the Blue Wave Movement? 
The Blue Wave Movement is the largest pro-life movement in the world. In Argentina, 77,000 people turned out at a feminist rally to call for the legalization of abortion. And so the pro-life movement, the Blue Wave Movement, decided to hold their own day of rallies across the country to respond. Anybody want to guess how many people showed up to that one? Over 3 million. There was drone footage of one of the rallies. And it's six minutes long, just a drone going across a sea of blue. Millions of people there. Why were they there? They took a day off work. They left their jobs. They left their homes. They traveled to big cities, all to make it loud and clear. Babies in the womb are not just entitled to be protected. They are entitled to be defended. Babies in the womb don't just have the right to life. They have the right to our defense. And around the world, pro-lifers are standing up in defense of those children. The fall of Roe v. Wade didn't only mean that over 30,000 babies were saved in the United States in the last year alone. It also meant that pro-life movements around the world doing the same work that we are a part of got so much courage, got so much vigor, got so much renewed energy for the battle. Around the world, everywhere the culture, where the culture of death raises its ugly head, pro-lifers are there to meet it. And I want to talk to you guys just for a minute about the story that we're all a part of. Because sometimes we can get into the routine. We're doing pro-life work. We know this work changes minds. We believe the imagery is effective. But let's think on a big level for a minute. Let's look at this from a macro level. The great philosopher Alistair McIntyre once said, before I can answer the question, what must be done, I must first answer the question of what story or stories am I a part of? And I think the story of the pro-life movement is one of the greatest stories that is still unfolding. I often get told, I know it's so admirable that pro-lifers sacrifice so much for the movement, and I say the same thing every time. The pro-life movement has given me so much more than I have given the pro-life movement. Because I have gotten the opportunity to stand up for beautiful children. I get to stand up for people that nobody else do. I get to spend mornings with people like you. When I go to different countries, I get to meet the best people in those countries right away the people who are standing up for babies. It has been the honor and the privilege of my life to be part of this movement, to be part of this story. And I remember that first week in Florida, I grew up hearing a lot of depressing talk about how the world was going to hell. I'm from Canada, so we're a bit ahead of you. And I remember as a teenager being really frustrated, like, what do you mean the world's going to hell? I just got here. Like, I don't want to hear stories about how everything's falling apart and the culture's in decline and, you know, how can people ever raise kids? And I remember that very first day on campus, sitting in a, at a campsite that night around a fire where people were swapping war stories. And then she said this, and then she changed her mind, and she became pro-life, and they were swapping all these stories. And I remember looking around at everybody and thinking, this is the story that I want to be a part of. I don't want to be part of the story where we talk about how everything's going to hell all the time how all the major battles are lost, about how it's going to be so hard to raise kids in a culture that is so poisonous and so toxic. This is the story that I want to be part of. I want to be the part, I want to be part of the story of the people who said no. I want to be part of the people who took the opportunity history had given them to be part of something so much bigger than themselves, something so beautiful, something that will introduce them to some of the most loyal, courageous, honorable men and women they'll ever meet. I want to be part of this story. It wasn't just the babies who brought me into the pro-life movement. It was also the pro-lifers that I got to meet. I wanted to be part of that story. I wanted to be part of the backlash to the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution, yes, as you read in my book, The Culture War, and as we discussed earlier this summer, was the most successful revolution the world has ever seen. 
It represented a cosmic rupture in history between the way people used to live and the way that they live now. But that, in a somewhat exhilarating way, gives us the opportunity to live as counter-revolutionaries. We can rebuild a culture of life. We can take back what was lost. I think of a place like Poland that suffered under communism for decades out of the Nazi frying pan and into the Soviet fire. There's been massive protests in Poland the last couple of years because they're steadily banning abortion in more and more circumstances. What people don't talk about, everybody likes to talk about, look at these abortion activists protesting these awful restrictive abortion laws, but what they don't realize is that only 22% of Poles support legal abortion and that Poland has become consistently more pro-life since the fall of communism, since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Let me give you an example. In 1992, 47% of Poles believed that abortion should be legal for financial reasons. In 2016, that number had fallen dramatically to a mere 14%. A country that was pro-abortion became increasingly pro-life year over year. That didn't happen by accident. That happened because of people like you. We see that in Canada as well. We see that year over year, the polling data tells us more and more and more people oppose abortion. The group of people most likely to oppose abortion are young people who realize that their government's lying to them about a lot of things. And one of the most significant things that the government's lying to them about is that the baby in the womb isn't a baby. That abortion is about a what, not about a who. But we have the opportunity to defend goodness, truth, and beauty. We get a chance to be a part of the story. I know that pro-life work is difficult, but life is difficult. And no other job, no other path provides the kind of payoff, the kind of reward, the kind of camaraderie that something like this does. Most of you will know this. You've, had, you've experienced the summer together. If somebody had told you before you joined the pro-life movement that you'd get screamed at, yelled at, called horrifying names, and it would be the best summer of your life, you would have called them nuts. But that's the way that it is, isn't it? C.S. Lewis uh, describes friendship in a phenomenal way, and I often think about it when I'm working with my pro-life friends. He says, friendship is born in the moment that one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. There's a lot of that going on in the pro-life movement. And I'm thrilled and honored to say that the pro-life movement is my people. We get an opportunity to say no to a sick society that kills its children. The future does not belong to those who advocate sterile sex and dump, dumpsters full of dead babies. The future belongs to people like you. And what an opportunity, what an opportunity to be a young man in 2022 and to be able with such simple tools to defend women and children, to stand up and live out what it means to be a man. What an opportunity to be a young woman in 2023 and be able to stand up for all that is best and beautiful about femininity, defending children telling the culture that women do not need to kill their children to be equal. What an opportunity to be the men and the women that we were created to be. The reason fairy tales have lasted for a thousand years is because most young men want to slay dragons, and the good news is there's an infestation. And you've got lots of generals who will direct you into battle. You are already part of the story, so I don't have to welcome you into the story of the backlash against the sexual revolution. I don't have to call on you to become counter-revolutionaries because you already are. But I want you to think for a moment about the story that you've entered, the story that you're a part of. And don't just see pro-life work as a responsibility. See it as an immense privilege. See pro-life work as an opportunity to do something that few other people get the opportunity to do. Living a life of meaning and defense of the children God created 
is one of the greatest opportunities that will ever be presented to you. I know it's been a lot of difficulty over the summer. I know there's hard battles coming up. I've gone through a lot of hard battles in Canada. Let me tell you, I wouldn't trade a minute of it for anything because of the people that I've gotten to meet. And one of those people was a little boy named Adrian. And his mother had scheduled an abortion at the clinic in Calgary. She walked past our signs in the rain, didn't stop to talk to anybody, but the baby spoke to her from the sign because we're telling stories on the streets when we're out there. The baby followed her home. She couldn't forget him. And finally, she called the clinic and she canceled. I'd been to the dumpster behind that exact clinic. I'd reached into garbage bags and pulled my gloved hand out dripping with blood. I'd unfolded pieces of blue terry cloth and seen severed arms, only a couple of inches long, perfectly created, translucent, framed by carnage. I knew what Adrian would look like if his mother had gone through with the appointment. I knew where he'd end up. But he didn't. Why? Because a handful of people told the story of the babies on the street. They didn't even have to talk to her. And remember this, when you've got a depressing activism day, if you were out there with the signs, people saw those babies. Those babies followed them home. Even if you've got a week where you're like, I don't even have a single good testimony of a mind changed, you have no idea how many babies you've saved. The first three I found out about of babies that we saved where the mothers came and told us later, they hadn't talked to a single one of us, but the babies had talked to them from the signs, and that was all that it took. Adrian's mother actually brought him to our office when he was a baby, and I got to hold him. I knew when his abortion appointment was. I knew where he would have ended up. I knew what he would have looked like. And as I held him, he stuck his fat hands on either side of my face. And that is one of the greatest moments of my life until I held my own daughter for the first time. You can have stories like that too. Many of you do. To have the opportunity to be a counter-revolutionary in this culture, to stand up for all that's good and true and beautiful, to stand up for God's most beautiful and defenseless creatures, is a responsibility, yes. It's also an incredible privilege. I'm so glad that you joined Create Equal this summer. I hope many of you will consider not just what kind of regrets that you want to have, but what kind of story you want to be a part of. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us this week. If you want to check out other episodes of the podcast, please head over to lifesightnews.com. Click on the podcast tab and you can find the Van Maren Show there. You can also find our podcast wherever you get your content. Thanks so much for listening.